0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this morning. We turn to the Acts of the Apostles. We've come to chapter 17, where Paul arrives in Athens. In order to put our text, which is the verses 16 and following in context, We're first going to read from the verses 1 to 15, where you see how Paul fared in Europe. When they, meaning Paul, Silas, and Timothy, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This, Jesus, I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of noble or more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. And then follows our text in verse 16, When Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Jesus was preaching the good news about Jesus, or Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas, by the way. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed him. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ of late, we have been following the Apostle Paul as he is making his way from Asia more and more into Europe. You remember his first stop, and you read that in Acts 16, was Philippi, that Roman colony, where he was escorted out of town and told by the authorities never to come back. His second stop was Thessalonica, which you read about here in Acts 17, where again he had to flee for his life. And his third stop was Berea, where once more he had to hightail it out of town and head for the hills. So one might say, as one reads this part of Holy Scripture, that Paul did not exactly get a glorious and heartwarming reception when he arrived in Europe. And now it is on to Athens. And then the question arises, though, did Paul really intend to go to Athens? Our text, you'll notice, says that he was escorted to Athens. And it may be that coming to Athens was not part of his original plan at all. There are those who think that Paul really wanted to go. West from Thessalonica and head toward Rome instead of going south toward Athens. But in any case, in Athens, he is. That's where the Holy Spirit, you might say, has led him and where he has to bring the gospel next. Well, how does he fare in Athens? Is it just like all the other places or is it different in one way or another? Well, I'd like to preach to you this morning on the theme, Paul makes Known the unknown God. We'll see that's especially what he does in Athens. Well, beloved, in Paul's day, as well as still in our day, Athens is a famous city. In Paul's day, however, it was a city that was somewhat past its prime and living off the glory of the past. Politically, it had been superseded by Rome, which was now the great superpower. Economically, it wasn't as prosperous as it used to have been. And intellectually, the great thinkers and philosophers of the past were gone. And those who pretended to be wise and very learned really couldn't hold a candle to the fellows of the past. So Athens was in somewhat of a slump, you might say. But even though Athens was in a slump, it was still one of the great cities of the ancient world. And thus, you can say, in many respects, a rather intimidating kind of place to come to. So the question is, how will Paul fare in Athens? And how is he going to address the challenge of absence? Well, notice from our text that he shows no sign of hesitation or intimidation. No, he he plunges ahead and as was his custom, first of all, he goes to the synagogue. And in the synagogue, he preaches to the Jews, as well as some God-fearing Greeks, people who were probably in the process of becoming Jewish believers. But notice he doesn't restrict himself to the synagogue. He also goes to the marketplace. In other words, he's casting his net wider. He goes somewhere where he hasn't gone before in this part of the world. He goes to what is called the Agora, or the marketplace, because that's predominantly the place where he will find Greeks innumerable. It's time to confront the pagans. But the question arises, how do you do that? How do you confront the pagans... The gospel. You know, at least when it comes to speaking to Jews, you can go to the synagogue and in the synagogue you can speak about Abraham and everybody knows who Abraham is. You can throw in a few prophets. You can speak about King David and Solomon and they'll understand you. They right away clue in. But, but what are you going to do with the Greeks? What do they know about Abraham? You know, they know as little about Abraham as Canadians know about cricket and as the English know about baseball, and as the Australians know about hockey, which is virtually nothing. Nevertheless, Paul gives it a go. We don't know exactly what he says to them in the Agora or the marketplace and how he approaches them, but what we do know is that almost immediately a reaction sets in, and it is, by and large, a negative reaction. Look at verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with them and some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Now notice that reaction. They call him a babbler, which really means a scrap picker. People who specialize in picking what they think are worthy things out of junk. You know, we have those people around us even today with their shopping carts and so on. They think that they have found treasure among the garbage and they guarded zealously and carted all over town and so forth. Well, they were saying, Paul, you're you're, you're a scrap picker. You you, you pick an idea here, you pick an insight there, and, and then you think somehow you can put it all together and sell it to us. But we're not buying. And so they're mocking the Apostle Paul. They don't want to give him any credit or respect. And not only do they mock him, but also they don't really understand him because in verse 18, it says, Others remark, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. You know, when these people are listening to Paul, they think, Oh, he's promoting and pushing two new gods. One is a male Jewish god called Jesus, and the other is a female god called Anastasis or Resurrection. You see, they don't really get what Paul's trying to tell them. And you know, added to that, there's also a certain flippancy present here when in verse 19, they invite him to speak with him about this new teaching. That invitation has to be read in light of verse 18. And that really means they're not very serious. They're curious, but not serious. They want an opportunity To debate. Because as it says in our text, these people, they spend all their time talking about the latest and the newest fangled ideas. And here's Paul with some new ideas. So why not invite him over and have a little bit of fun at his expense? And so you see, there's mockery, confusion, there's flippancy here. But two more things too. There's also ignorance. In verse 22 and 23, it says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I've even found an inscription to an unknown God. Now, our Bible translation could have said that really what Paul says about these people, is not that they're religious. He actually says, you're a superstitious bunch. And I think we need to understand that. These Greeks are very superstitious. And that means at bottom, they're they're very careful when it comes to religious so-called things, even insecure. For what had most likely happened most likely the Greeks had found a number of idols of various gods, but the names on these idols could no longer be deciphered. Either the elements had, the rain and the wind had worn it away, or, or some people had come along and defaced these idols. So no one really knew just who these idols were talking about or who they described. And if you're superstitious, you can't leave it at that. you got to do something. And so what the Jews did is they would write on that particular idol that had been defaced or where they couldn't tell the name, they would write to an unknown God. And in that way, that unknown God at least got some kind of recognition and hopefully a bit of respect as well. So there are superstitious Otherwise, you wouldn't go out of your way to do that kind of thing. But, you know, they're also a bit fearful. For it's not just about superstition. It's also about, you know, this God who whoever he or she may be may come back to hurt you or haunt you. So you'd better, better recognize them in one form or another if you know what's good for you. And so you can see, beloved Athens, quite the place. Filled with all kinds of interesting characters and crammed to the brim with idols. Idols everywhere. Every street, every corner, every square, every building. What a sight. But notice to the Apostle Paul, it's a rather... Depressing sight. This isn't art. That's what we call it today. Paul would say it's probably a religious smut. In verse 16, we're told that he was greatly distressed to see that this city was full of idols, full of perversion, full of darkness, full of ignorance. You know, in some ways, his reaction is like the reaction of the prophet Elijah. You can read about that in 1 Kings 19, where Elijah at a certain moment in his ministry laments, and he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty, but the Israelites have rejected your covenant, O Lord. They have broken down your altars. They have put your prophets to death with a sword. Elijah was very upset by all of the disobedience and all of the idolatry around him. Everywhere God was being ignored or abused, his name, his covenant, his law, it was all being perverted. And so now Paul comes to Athens, and all he sees are idols and more idols. Athens is an idol factory. Chock full of false worship, and it distresses him mightily, it vexes his soul, it raises his ire, his soul is on fire for God, and he just can't stand what he sees all around him. You know, when you take note of that, you, you just can't but help, can you? But thinking about yourself, perhaps, and about your own situation, and perhaps even your own reactions. You know, Paul's very vexed by the idols of his day. Raises the question, just how vexed are we today by all the modern idols around us? Now, it's not my purpose to put you all on a guilt trip, but it is my purpose to kind of alert you all and to ask yourself the question, do we, in in our Christian lives, do we still show any of this kind of holy ire that Paul exhibits? You know, our world may not be filled with idols of wood, stone, or gold, or silver. we have our idols. Our idols are everywhere. Our money, our sports, sex, our cars, our houses. We turn so many things into idols and we make them the first and the foremost thing of our life. Do we realize that? Do we still put God first and foremost... Or do we become indifferent to it all? We forget about God's name. Others forget about God's name. His son is defamed. His honor is compromised. And we hardly blink. Is that how it is with us? Have we become so used to, so in tune, so compromising the things of this life? You know, this little boy baptized here this morning, his name is is Micah, right? You know what Micah means? Micah means, who is like the Lord? And that, of course, is a rhetorical question, and the answer to that question is no one. No one else is like the Lord because he alone is exalted. Well, may he come to know that, and to believe that, and one day to confess that. No one compares to my God. And watch out what you say about my Heavenly Father. But then, beloved, if God gives you and hopefully Micah the courage and the opportunity to stand up for his name, That's also what he did for the Apostle Paul. He is invited to bring his strange ideas to the Areopagus, to the debate forum in Athens, and that's where he goes. And there he stands up, and he begins to proclaim. He's determined to set the Greeks, the Athenians, straight. He says, verse 23, Now what you worship as something unknown... I am going to proclaim to you. And then, in the original language, the I is very emphatic. I, the scrap picker, the garbage plunderer in your eyes, I've got something to tell you. He's going to take on their confused and false ideas. And how does he do that? Well, first, he reveals God's identity. He says in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. You know, earlier we we came across some Stoics mentioned in our text. And these Stoics, they went around and they said, Well, there really isn't... One God, you you can't really identify any one God. You know, God's kind of everywhere. He's in nature, he's in the trees, and he's in the rocks, and he's in the sun, and he's in the rain, and, and he doesn't really have a name. You can't separate him from the world. But notice Paul says, wrong. The one who made the world and everything in it, he says, is the Lord of heaven and earth. He has a name. He is a person. He's above all creation. He's its Lord and its Master. A second Paul reveals God's freedom. He adds, and does not live in temples built by human hands. The Greeks that the gods could be contained, limited, hemmed in, even manipulated. Paul, however, echoes the words of King Solomon, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. The Lord of heaven and earth. Cannot be restricted. He's everywhere. And third, Paul reveals God's independence. Verse 25, and he is not served by human hands, Paul says to the Athenians, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. You see, both the Stoics and the Epicurean philosophers, they stress that the gods need man. They're looking to us. They're waiting for us. Paul says nonsense. The Lord of heaven and earth doesn't need us. If you think God needs you, you're all wet, to put it politely. And yet in spite of that, even though he doesn't need even one of us, he cares for us. The Epicureans in particular insisted that the gods are distant and detached. They don't really care what happens on earth. They don't care what happens in your life. They don't care about your ups and downs and your daily struggles. It doesn't phase on them or fizz on them in the least. But the apostle counters this by insisting that the Lord of heaven and earth is intimately involved with the lives of his children. That he creates and keeps and sustains them all. And that whether your name be Micah or something else, he knows you. He watches over you. He sees you. He understands you. And fourth, Paul reveals also God's power. In verse 26, we hear him say, From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. If you read something about the Greeks, you may know they thought they were special. God's gift to humanity. They, had, they said come out of special kind of soil. And and therefore, they were superior to all other people. Well, Paul punctures their balloon. He says, that's not true. You Greeks aren't any superior to anybody else. We all come from the same source, the same origin. No matter what your color, no matter what your looks, no matter what your tongue. The one God's great creative power has made us all. Contrary to what the Epicureans said long ago, contrary even to what the evolutionists would tell us today, we're not accidents. And neither are some people better accidents than others. We're all created realities. And fifth, Paul also reveals God's design In verse 26, Paul goes on to say, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. As we said, the Epicureans and the Stoics said, God doesn't care about man. And they said, not only does he not care, but God doesn't get involved in human affairs. But Paul denies this. He insists that God determines and directs people's times and places. The Lord of heaven and earth, he's saying, is sovereign. That he rules over all. That he rules actively and intimately in our lives. He rules according to his plan. And six, Paul also reveals in his words to the Athenians God's purpose. Look at verse 27. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Contrary to the popular idea in Athens, this God not only creates and cares, directs and designs, he also wants a response from humanity. He wants this because he is not far from each of us. Paul even quotes a Greek philosopher, Aritas, who says that we are his offspring. In other words, God is not indifferent to you. He's not content about a situation in which he does his thing up there and you do your thing down here. No, he wants us to seek him. And then to find him. And he wants this from every single human being on the face of the earth. We all need to seek him. And then perhaps if we really seek him, we'll find him. He wants that from Micah as he grows up. He wants that from all of you present here this morning. But then, of course, the question arises, how do we seek the Lord of heaven and earth? How do we reach out for him or to him and find him? Well, the answer, my friends, is in the verses 30 and 31, and it's in the words, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repent. You thought he was going to say, and now he commands people everywhere to love him? Or perhaps you thought he's going to say, you need to ask Jesus into your heart, or you need to say the sinner's prayer, or you need to make a choice for God. Paul says you need to repent you know what repentance is? It's a change of heart that leads to a change of will and a change of direction and a change in your life. It's like a huge U-turn. That's what God wants to see. A U-turn away from sin and a U-turn to God. And you know that's That's not a suggestion. It's a command. God wants people everywhere to repent. And why does he command that? Well, there's a seventh thing in our text that Paul reveals as well, and it's about judgment. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. Paul's saying one day there will be judgment day. I'm not sure how many still believe that today. Most of us, or quite a few of us tend to live like ostriches with our head in the sand. How many still believe in in Judgment Day, in a day of of reckoning, a day of accountability, a day when the books will be opened, a day when we'll be standing before the throne of God, a day when we'll have to speak about ourselves and about our life and about our deeds, good or evil? We'd rather stick our head in the sand because then it's not so scary, right? Not so upsetting or nightmarish. But not to leave you with gloom and doom. There's also hope here. Look at the rest of verse 31. He will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Who's going to judge the world? None other than Jesus Christ. You read that in scripture over and over again. You find it back in our, our form for baptism where it says that in the last day we may appear without tear before the judgment seat of Christ your Son. That's in the prayer. See, there comes a day when Jesus will be judge. When Jesus risen and exalted today, seated at the right hand of the Father, will come back to judge the living and the dead. Yes, Jesus is judge, but He's also Savior. His resurrection, Paul says, is proof that the judgment is coming. But his resurrection is also a reminder to all who believe in him that they need not fear the judgment. Because, you see, for those who believe in him, he is the first fruits of a great and glorious harvest. His resurrection, his judgment is... Prior to the consummation of all things. So beloved, here you have the call of the gospel again. Paul says, believe in Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead. Commit your life to him. Confess him. Love him. Obey him. Only he can preserve you from the coming judgment. You can't do it yourself. Others can't do it for you. Only Jesus can keep you on the day of judgment. And it's coming. And then Paul isn't going out of his way to scare the wits out of the Athenians. He's simply going out of the way to warn them. One day, it'll be judgment day. And there'll be no escape. No escape. We think there will be, of course. some ways, it reminds me of little children. When I was young, I, well, I guess more than once, I did something that wasn't very good, and I knew I was in trouble with my father. But one time I did a particular deed, and I thought, oh, now I'm really going to get it. So I thought, well, if I run away for a while, and if I hide, and if I come home really late, he'll forget. And I'll escape the judgment that I deserved. So finally I came home late at night. I was a little guy and I took a ironing pan out of the, or frying pan out of the kitchen. I stuck it in my pants because I knew the first blow was going to hurt. And sure enough it hurt, but it hurt him more than me. But the ones after that, once the the pan came out, hurt me a lot more. You see, there is no escape. That's what Paul wants to stress here. If you think you can avoid the inevitable, you can't avoid it. You can ridicule it, you can wish it away, but that will not make it go away. There's no way around it. But thanks to the gospel, there is a way through it. And that has everything to do with Jesus Christ. And with believing in him. And may we all realize that. And may Micah, as he grows up, come to realize that as well. And indeed, may we join ranks with Dionysius, Damaris, and a number of others. For they found shelter in the man whom God appointed to judge the world. And so must we all. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.